Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards who just as an aside, is back in Melbourne after being stuck in Sydney for an awful long time earlier this year. We're very excited to be doing this podcast for the first time in person this season. Astrid, how are you doing? I am feeling so wonderful, Jam. We are in the same room and I can actually see you in the flesh. This feels, this feels special. This is the first time we've done this since season one, (laughs) which is really depressing, but it's also very nice to be back. Our Subject for today is confusion, and I thought we might start by talking about why books that solve or seek to solve human confusion are so popular. I wanted to ask about self-help books. Are you a self-help book person? No, I am not a self-help book person, and I immediately feel like telling the world that I am not a self-help book person, but when I think about not great times in my life. I have turned books and some of them probably have been from the self-help shelf. Is that because I'm embarrassed? Maybe. I think I feel similar things. There are definitely books I've read in my life that fall into the self-help genre and books I've really enjoyed, but there's something not geeky, but a bit, I don't know, a little bit mainstream, a little bit like, oh God, not cool, a bit daggy maybe about self-help. Okay, I browse in bookstores all the time and I walk through all of the sections because I find myself just loving bookstores and and the presence of books. But even now, I walk through the self-help section quicker. I don't want anyone to see me there. Mm, Interesting. But I do think that self-help is getting cooler because we've now got books like How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, we're moving into how to be a good ally kind of books, books that are in the self-help genre, but are moving us into a space of self-improvement in order to help others and in order to help a society rather than just kind of look good, feel better vibes. So would you classify that kind of book as self-help? Isn't it? I haven't thought of it like that. I assumed it was like that catch-all modern commentary. Yeah, potentially. But isn't the whole purpose of a book like that to improve yourself and to be better? It is, but I guess I am, I don't know, outing myself here. I think of self-help as have some lavender and crystals and Mm. say this mantra. Mm. Me too. And I think what I'm trying to do is have a broader concept of it because it is popular. I went to look up the figures because I know from my own publishers and also from places like Audible who have told me as a writer that this is the space you need to be writing in because self-help Sells and they classified my first book, Not Just Lucky, as self help. They were like, it's about self improvement, that's what it is. And I shuddered and then accepted it. <laughs> I had no idea Not Just Lucky was found in the self help section. I am sorry for everything I just said, paying out self help. Well, sometimes bookshops classify it as feminism, some classify it as business, but it is a form of self improvement. It's talking about how you can change your own. Behavior. So I'm trying to have this broader view and I wanted to be able to give you some data on why self-help sells so well. And I quickly turned to Google to find me the data and I put in why are self-help books so 
and I intended to write popular and it comes up with bad. So let's head on into confusion, which can be solved through self-help, but also through fiction and by other means. So, Jem, today I am extremely happy to be able to give you a fiction recommendation, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Have you read it? I have read it and I am very excited to hear what you've got to say about this one because it felt like it was right up your alley. It really was. Okay, so I missed this in 2017 when it was published and I admit I also missed the 2020 Hulu TV series that it felt like everybody was watching last year in lockdown, which of course starred Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. For the record, I also missed Celeste Ng's first book, which was published in 2014 called Everything I Never Told You. And because I love Little Fires so much, I'm fully intending to go back and read her first work. Now, I guess... There are so many different ways to enter this story. Let me start by saying it is a page turner. It is a thrilling read. On the first page, there's been a fire, which you kind of know from the title. And I just wanted to know who lit the fire and why. It's one of those books that gets you in very, very quickly by presenting you with a conundrum that you go, okay, this is what we're going to solve. This is the information that I'm going to go and seek. And a lot's going to come with me along the way. I was reading a couple of reviews of the book before coming to chat to you. And there is a review in The Observer by Lionel Shriver, who I think we all know is a author who is very well renowned, who wrote We Need to Talk About Kevin, and is also very outspoken in the space of being able to write characters whose experience and background is not your own. So Lionel defends, for example, the right of white authors to write black characters or First Nations characters, and is a really very strong arguer, I think, in that debate. She is a strong arguer. She, for the record, is a white woman, and... If anyone's interested in how she presents herself, Google Benjamin Law and Lionel Shriver and you can see how Benjamin Law took this when Lionel Shriver was visiting Australia. Indeed. The reason I bring Lionel Shriver into this conversation is that she wrote a review for The Observer that's been republished in The Guardian across the world and she basically says that this book, that Little Fires Everywhere, is an expertly written book but it doesn't deliver. And the direct quote is... The world in which I read it would be indistinguishable from the one in which I didn't, which is fairly scathing. Her criticism is the book doesn't deliver meaning. So what I wanted to ask you was, if we set the plot lines aside, what meaning did Celeste Ng give you? Am I allowed to say I find Lionel Shriver really irritating? Me too. Um, (laughs) But to answer your question, I think that that's... silly question for Shriver to even pose. I don't think books have to give meaning. I think books have to provide questions or be purely entertaining. And I found Little Fires Everywhere post questions for me and was just an adorable read. I had fun reading this book. I think that's a really important reflection that this book explores some really big subjects, right? It looks at intersectionality of race and gender and sexuality. There's a really complex web of characters and storylines going on. But sometimes we don't have to have a single great takeaway from a novel, do we? We can just go away with having read a good read, like a good romp of a read, right? 
Romp is an excellent word to describe this book. It feels like a romp. It's a playful book whilst still being about really serious things. So no spoilers because we're not going to ruin what happens in the book, but essentially Little Fires Everywhere is set in a real place, Shaker Heights, which is a planned community in Ohio in the US. And not only is that very central to the story and the character of one of the main characters, it's also where Celesting, the author, grew up. So she has this experience that she wanted to write into literature. So Shaker Heights is a planned community in a way that, to be honest, I didn't know they existed in real life. There are plans for what time of the evening kids can do trick-or-treating on Halloween each year. That's how planned this is. And Eleanor Richardson, the main character, who, by the way, is played by Reese Witherspoon in the TV series, she's like the Generation Shaker Heights. And this planned community shapes her personality. So she is planned. She is organised. She is by the rules. She thinks she is a good person. She is pretty predictable, to be honest, Mm. because everything is planned out and... She has a boyfriend and they get married and they have children and then they live this happy existence and that's literally her goal in life. There's very much a a confined structure of how she's going to live out her future, not just for her day-to-day, but this is where I'm going. Absolutely. And this main character and her family, she has four kids and a husband, and the kids are particularly important to the story, contrast with our other protagonists, Mia Warren and her daughter, Pearl Warren, and they are, well, they are the opposite of Shaker Heights and they are the opposite of Eleanor and her very structured family. I enjoyed Mia and Pearl's storyline much more than Eleanor's. And so this story is, you know, juxtaposing Mia, a free spirit artist, always living a non-structured bohemian free life, moving around, paying the rent with menial jobs, always kind of looking at the next town, always looking at the next opportunity in the service of art and raising her daughter in a very intimate on-the-road experience, just the two of them. She lives day-to-day, right? That's the ultimate contrast between the planned existence and, and I mean this in the best way, the confused existence, the existence that says, today I'm going to do this. And I'm not really going to worry about the long-term consequences and the what next, the what ifs. I'm just going to act. And of course, no matter how much any of us try to plan our lives, life happens. And the plot of this novel is driven by the meeting of worlds, the the freewheeling, non-structured existence kind of crashes into Shaker Heights and the planned existence. The two families meet. They have all sorts of different character interactions, positive, negative, etc. But I guess there are three themes that are confusing and difficult to deal with. There are three different instances of transracial adoption. There is the idea of motherhood and what is a good mother. And then there is class and privilege. And None of those things have easy answers and all of them are damn confusing. Did you get a bit of of a Leanne Moriarty vibe? Yeah, and you know what? I haven't read that many Leanne Moriarty vibes because I am that person who avoids a lot of the bestsellers, hence me coming to this novel like three years after it's been published. But yeah, it's a page turner and you get those kind of 
the inner secrets of a woman coming out and having lots of ramifications that drive the plot. All right, so we know it's a page turner. We've got some Leanne Moriarty vibes going on, but we've got a lot of intersectionality happening as well, which I think adds a new dimension to this book. Who is it for? This book is for anyone who loves a good page turner written by a woman, but also anybody who is interested in complex female characters that are in a work of fiction, but that also then get reinterpreted pretty quickly on the silver screen. Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon not only starred in the movie, they were both the executive producers. And Celeste Ng, the author, she was also a producer on the adaptation. And I think that obviously I love books, but it's really fascinating to see a hugely entertaining novel. And I would argue with Lionel Shriver's interpretation, I think this is a great novel, then be reinterpreted by really well-respected female artists in a different medium. I think it's really cool. Next up, Astrid, we are turning to non-fiction, and this is a relatively new release. It's called Keep Sharp by Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Now, I know you know who Sanjay Gupta is, but have you managed to read the book? Okay. Well, firstly, I would like to say for the record that I have a deep and abiding crush on Dr. Sanjay Gupta. (laughs) I have been watching CNN for all of my adult life and I don't know, he must have been a commentator on there for at least 10 years. And I have to say during 2020 and during the recent US elections and all of the coverage of COVID, Sanjay Gupta is my go-to guy. I think he is for a lot of people. And if you don't recognise the name, I suspect you would recognise the face or the sound of his voice even if you did a quick tune in to CNN. So a bit of scene setting first. Sanjay Gupta is an Emmy Award winning medical correspondent. (laughs) He is a New York Times bestselling author a bunch of times over with his previous works and he is also an associate professor of neurosurgery in the United States. So he comes to this with credibility. He comes to this not only with health credibility but media and the ability to communicate kind of credibility. And this book also comes out during a really significant time of public health crisis and also a really tumultuous election in the United States, during which health was a major player in the debate and the discussion leading up to that election. So to say it's timely is an understatement, I believe. The book is about whether or not you can train your mind against the impact of ageing. In short, I think most of us assume that as we get older, that our bodies will decline with us, that that is inevitable, that our health will start to go, that, you know, what I'm already struggling with, which is that when I sit down on the floor to play with my kid, I have to get up. And I really, that bit's harder. A bit sadder because I am rapidly approaching 35 and it's all going, guys. It's all going. But all of us put a lot of work, right, into avoiding that physical decline, into putting it off. We get messages all the time from television, from books, from conversations with friends, from work, even from our doctors about physically what we can do to prevent decline or ease that decline and to keep our bodies at their peak condition for longer. We don't do that that much with our brains. We kind of assume that the decline of our brain is inevitable. And what Sanjay Gupta says in Keep Sharp is it's not. 
So, Jem, I have another thing to admit. This is apparently the section where I admit things. I have a copy of this book. I've had it for a while. And whenever I get a book that has something to do with health or brains, my health is not great. My brain is the particular problem. I have multiple sclerosis. I do two things. Firstly, I flip to the back and I look to see if anyone's going to talk about multiple sclerosis. And there is no listing of multiple sclerosis in the back. There is a lot on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and some other memory-related conditions and disorders. Does that make you more likely to read the book or less likely? It makes me feel more comfortable reading it, I'm admitting. And then I flipped to the front and jam. the first thing I came across was the uh, quick self-assessment on how well I am looking after my brains and I failed the test. Yeah. And then I put the book down in sadness. (laughs) Yes, the book does open with a rapid... And not fulsome, but still a useful self-assessment of what you are currently doing to look after your brain. And I didn't score great either. So at least we, you know, we'll decline together. Um, (laughs) I think one of the things I liked about Keep Sharp is that I've kind of always thought that you could pursue the best diet of food, that you could pursue the best exercise regime you know, that Pilates and yoga would help you forever or whatever it, whatever it might be. I hadn't really considered it around the brain. I think I was someone who assumed that, for example, I've experienced some memory loss in the last few years, that that's how it goes. Either my brain gets a bit better or it stays the same or perhaps gets worse. And the concept that I could do something is exciting. And some of the things Gupta explores are things like whether or not it's healthier to play video games that test your memory and they look at your processing speed, whether or not it is useful to be doing all those Sudokus or crosswords or whatever it might be. And he compares that to things like social interaction. How important is it that you're just having long, meaningful conversations and whether or not that is going to help expand your brain power and heal your memory and look after you for longer. And I think the analogy he used that really stuck with me was that Gupta at one point in the book describes the brain as like a a map of a city. So he sort of says there are parts of that map you know really well. Like, I can get from my place to Astrid's without needing a map, despite being someone with very poor sense of direction. Other people who perhaps live on the other side of the city might find that a lot harder. And he says, if you think about your brain like that, there are parts of the map you know really well and that you drive on all the time. For example, you might be able to cook your favourite meal without looking at a recipe book. You know how to get to your kid's school to pick them up. You know the way you do your makeup in the morning. You know the way that your partner's patterns through the day will work. You can guess what they're going to do before they do it. There are things that become automatic. And then there are things that we don't do. And those are the roads that we don't drive on very often. And we don't care for them very much. And he says the roads that we care for the least on the map are not just the roads we've never been down, they are our memories, that memories get the least care and attention and that our recall of important memories but also less important memories 
is something we pay less attention to as we age, which to me makes a lot of sense. You know, as a kid, even at school, even at university for me, there's so much focus on recall, right, and constantly being asked to recall things. And now if, if you asked me a complex times table, I'd be like, ah, bah! and I'd panic before I could just do the reflex answer that I could do at six years old. Me too. You know, I have watched Sunday Gupta a lot on CNN throughout COVID and he has been talking about the importance of sharing and reliving memories with those we love, our friends, our family, our colleagues, because it has the kind of immediate emotional lift, right? It's that social interaction and it's pleasant in the present, but also it has a long-term beneficial effect on our brains. So, Jam, I've admitted that I haven't read this and I think that this is actually an important book for me to read and I just need to get over my vague fears of stuff related to health and brains. But who do you think this is for? Is it for everyone? Yeah, it is. You and I have a particular interest in brains because of our medical conditions. But I think anyone would pick this book up and find it useful. Perhaps not someone under 25 (laughs) because you've got that smug optimism of youth that you shall never decline. But I think most of us know someone, at least with Alzheimer's. A lot of us have dementia in our families or we know someone with a brain injury or a brain-related illness. And even if you don't have those things or one or many of those things, you have your own experience of the world and the fact that as you get older, your brain does change. And I think there's something really lovely, like there's there's real hope and optimism in being told that you don't have to relinquish yourself to the decline of the brain, that there are things you can do. Of course, your body is your body and it will take its course and our bodies behave differently. There are some things we can't prevent with just some good thoughts and practice, but we can have an impact. There are things we can do when it comes to brain boosting, so to speak, and they're not contained in an overpriced vitamin. They are contained in actually taking the time to exercise your brain in new ways, to force yourself to try new things and forge new neural pathways. I think we have this view of the world that our brains are pretty much fixed, right? That we've we've done that work as kids and, and our brain capacity is done by the time we're an adult, that we're not as good at learning new things and the like. We could be if we tried, if we put the work in, if we forced ourselves into that territory of forming new neural pathways and trying things and doing them again and again and again until they become automatic and we become better at them it's just that most of us are a bit afraid to try right like the idea of trying something completely new that I might not be good at it's terrifying I don't want to I don't want to whereas kids have to do that at school every day that is so true and as adults we have such control over what we let ourselves do in our downtime and often at our jobs we're doing stuff for other people And we aren't really exercising our brains. There's a really famous study that I've come across in my other work that's done with little kids. And it shows that if you give a group of small children a puzzle, they have a go at the puzzle and they complete the puzzle and you say to them, would you like to do the same puzzle again? Or would you like to do a new harder puzzle? The younger the child is, the more likely they want to do the new harder puzzle. The older the child is, the more likely they want to do the same puzzle. So here is my question via Dr. Sanjay Gupta to all of you. How much of your life do you spend doing the same puzzle? 
It is a recommendations time, Astrid. And because we are sitting here physically in one another's company, I can see that that is a well-read book. This is a well-read book. It has curved. I was so excited when I was reading it. I literally kind of broke the spine and turned the pages back to front. So I know that's going to horrify many readers, but nevertheless, today I would like to recommend The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Jam, I know you haven't read it, and this is certainly one that probably is not what you pick up. So do you remember in our first episode of this season, you mocked me by saying that I had a certain love for sci-fi or dystopias or near future stories where everybody dies? I don't remember that particular occasion, but I mock you about that quite a bit. So I have a recommendation in that genre. So (laughs) technically the Ministry for the Future is a dystopia. But I would actually argue, and this is really important because I don't want you to continue to mock me, I think this is a, a really significant book that has just been published. Technically, I would argue that it's like a pragmatic utopia because unlike most books that I love where everything goes really badly in our near future, this one goes through that badness and we come to a hopeful place and almost a place, utopia is too strong a word, but we come to a place where we're all not dead of climate change. And it's pretty darn thrilling. It sounds very Harry Potter-esque, the title, The Ministry for the Future. Okay, so The Ministry for the Future is actually set up under the Paris Agreement. Now, this is a fictional work, but it is based very much on our present. So, you know, the Paris Agreement would be that very real Paris Agreement that Trump took the United States out of and Biden just put the United States back into. And in our very near future, hypothetically, the Paris Agreement founds the Ministry for the Future. And the Ministry for the Future is a body who is to advocate for future generations. Because let's face it, our politicians and our business leaders and maybe many of us aren't doing anything helpful for future as yet unborn people. And we have lots of different viewpoints in this story, but the main one would be Mary and we follow her through decades. And Anybody who has been following international politics kind of over the last 20, 30 years will see that Mary is actually based on Mary Robinson, former Prime Minister of Ireland, and Christiana Figueres, who's currently leaving the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So they're two very real, very strong women who are working to change our world for the better. And this central character kind of combines them and projects what their career might be over the coming decades. Now, surely, Jam, that's a selling point for you. I will admit you have got me and I will read it. I think this is a book for anyone who cares about the climate, anyone who has climate anxiety, but it is also a book for anyone who wants to read about a utopia and us all getting to a place that's really good in a couple of decades because this is a happy story. You just have to get through some bad stuff first. You're just staring at me, Jam. I was kind of in. Then I lost it. (laughs) Well, fine. What are you recommending for me? I don't need as much time for my recommendation because it speaks for itself. And that is More Than a Woman by Caitlin Moran. Now, most of our audience will be familiar with Caitlin Moran because of her mega-selling 2011 book, How to Be a Woman, which was a blockbuster all over the world. She's now 
45 and she is taking another look at womanhood from a new perspective. Now, before you roll your eyes, there were some problems with how to be a woman that I think as we've all started to interrogate our ideas around inclusion and diversity more, we're able to look back on that book and see problems with it. Here's why you shouldn't be put off Caitlin Moran. She examines her own mistakes. She, in this new work, questions the way she thought about things before, the way she conceived of womanhood, and with her delightfully funny, witty storytelling approach starts to put the issues that women face, particularly in their 40s and 50s, into new perspective. It's hysterical because that's what Moran does. She builds the chapters around her life. There's the hour of married sex. There is the hour of counting all the things a woman will have by the age of 40 which show what she wanted to be but hasn't been. She has pulled in these different threads of womanhood and middle age and put them together in a way that makes you laugh but also I think really makes you feel quite sane and she picks up I think where Nora Ephron left off in I Feel Bad About My Neck and the way she describes her own body the bodies of her friends women's acceptance of how they look how body dysmorphia is projected onto our children, especially our daughters, is quite beautiful and really touching. And I wasn't sure if Caitlin Moran today would bring me the magic and excitement that Caitlin Moran did when I picked up How to Be a Woman back in 2012 or 2013, and she absolutely did. That is a great recommendation, Jam. Whenever an author re-examines their own work and critiques themselves, when they do it honestly, that is such a powerful example. It's an example of how one's own opinion can grow and change. And it's always a good thing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. It was brought to you by the glorious folks at Hachette Publishing who are not only bringing us great reads but also some really generous support to make this season possible. We want to thank Future Women and Bad Producer Productions and we want to thank you. We want to thank you for listening to us, for spending some time with us this morning, this afternoon, this evening, in the middle of the night, whenever you happen to be listening. Astrid and I really appreciate it. If you would like to get more Anonymous Was a Woman, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I really recommend that you subscribe. It will mean that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review, hopefully a good one. Please Stick with us because on Thursday this week, we will be speaking to Kylie Maslin about her beautiful book, Show Me Where It Hurts, which also happens to be a really personal one for Astrid and I. Don't miss it. 